0: Are you new to coaching? Starting out as a coach can be incredibly overwhelming, especially when you aren't given much direction from your administration. That's why I created the New Coaches Playbook. It includes a roadmap to help you start building your coaching foundation and a guide to seven podcast episodes in order that will give you the steps and ideas you need to build relationships, define your role, communicate with your admin, and make a plan to start coaching. your instructional coaching personality type? Have you ever wondered what superpowers make you a really strong coach and what areas you can strengthen with just a little bit of direction? Well, now you can find out. I created the What's Your Instructional Coaching Personality Type quiz to help you answer this very question. Just head to slash quiz with a capital Q to take the 2-minute quiz and get your coaching personality type sent right to your inbox even better, you'll get a playlist of podcast episodes hand-picked just for you to help you hone your superpowers and strengthen your areas of growth. I'm so excited to share this quiz with you, so don't wait to take it. Go to BuzzyWithMissBee.com slash quiz with a capital Q and learn so much about your coaching style. This episode is all about your favorite thing. Okay, for some of you, it may be your favorite thing, but I'm going to guess that's not the case for everybody. I mean, I'm fine with looking at data and breaking it down and all that, but I can distinctly remember some years where I felt like the data was shoved down my throat and like weaponized and I didn't want to see one more chart, table, or bar graph again. I mean, I even wrote a blog post about it. It was called Data Bar. I'm not even kidding right now. That's what I called it. you're feeling like that. I totally get it. I'm not here to tell you that you should be doing more data or taking more data. I'm here to tell you how to do it better. So let me paint a picture for you. You have a data meeting and you are surrounded with a group of teachers, maybe five teachers from a grade level or a team. They're all kind of annoyed. They have these faces that show that they don't really want to be be there. And then they look at their numbers and all they can do is justify by blaming the kids. They say, well, so-and-so doesn't do anything or well, so-and-so, I mean, what can, what am I supposed to do about that? That's just the way he came in. Or, and they spend a lot of time talking about all the reasons that there's no way that their kids can perform better than they are. Then they walk out of the meeting and there are zero changes taking place to their teaching because they just, they didn't even talk about that. They didn't talk about how they could respond to the data. They talked about justifying why their data was what it was or lamenting it. I've known some excellent teachers who just look at their data and immediately crumble if it's not what they hoped. They feel awful. They feel sad. They feel guilty. They're devastated. And we as coaches have to figure out how to respond to that to make that meeting into something productive instead of something that just causes, causes them to wallow in their shame, right, and guilt. That is not at all the point of data. I had a wonderful teacher what, for several years that I worked with, and she always used to say... Miss Chrissy, I just, I saw my data and it's terrible. And I just, my kids, I know that they're, they're struggling and I, and she would like start to spiral and the guilt was just palpable. And I used to say, we're not here to make you feel badly about your data. That is not the point of any meeting. We're here to figure out what to do about it to grow our kids. So we're going to take this and we're going to turn it into something purposeful. Okay. And after, over time, she, she started to take in that language herself, and she would say, I know what you're going to tell me. I know you're going to tell me not to sit here and just feel terrible about it. You're going to say, what are we going to do? What can we do next? And she goes, I, I got it. I know that's what we're going to do. So it, it, she still had those automatic negative thoughts, but over time, she could take them and turn them into action, which is the whole point. It's, it's to help us figure out what do we do next? How do we respond to it in order to get our kids the support that they need to be successful? Now, I also know data doesn't tell you everything, okay? And I will never, ever forget that. It's actually in one of my episodes, Digging Into Data, episode eight, I talk about some things that you need to know about data. And one of them is it's not the whole picture. So I want you to remember that as well. But we can do purposeful work with information that we get, as long as we're thoughtful and we're not wasting everybody's time with data meetings that make the actual numbers the end game. The point of collecting data isn't to have a lot of numbers that show us what the kids can do. The point is to figure out how we will modify the instruction going forward to support the kids in the areas they need it most and to push even our strongest students. So if you're leaving data meeting without a plan for next steps, this episode is absolutely for you and you're going to change it. That's going to feel so great. In episode 119, all about planning collaboratively, I mentioned norms and I'm going to mention them again. They are important and especially when you're looking at data, having norms in place can help you avoid a lot of hurt feelings or uncomfortable dialogue. Although I will say, sometimes those uncomfortable dialogues are necessary. We don't want to make people feel badly about their teaching, but change can feel like discomfort sometimes, and there are times when a big change is needed. I have personally sat through some meetings where certain teachers were very uncomfortable and at times defensive. So maintaining your calm and focusing your dialogue on what can we do for students is my best advice. Keep the focus on the kids and what we can do to respond to what we see. Yes, there are absolutely systemic issues that kids struggle with, and if a teacher continues to move in that direction with their dialogue, it's not that they're wrong, but I recommend that you say you have a lot of good points because these things actually do affect kids. Let's keep, kids, let's keep today focused on what we can do individually in the classroom to help these kids grow in these areas, and then you and I can set a date to talk about those issues and how we as a school can respond to them. That's just a bonus piece of information, but I know this is one of the biggest challenges we face during data meetings, so I wanted to get that out right in front. In my course, The Confident Literacy Coach, I teach coaches exactly how to conduct a data meeting, including how to prepare for it and how to follow up. So that is at confidentliteracycoach.com, and you can grab it now. It's open, and it will close soon. So I don't want you to miss it. If you're needing some help in how to work with, with PLCs and how to coach teachers, go grab that course. Honestly, it's focused on literacy. There are elements there that you could use in coaching. The coaching PLCs, the coaching individual teachers, the managing your time and responsibilities, the you know establishing yourself as a coach—all those components are going to be good for anybody. And then just the modules about literacy wouldn't really pertain to you. In this episode, we're going to talk about what to do in a data PLC one step at a time. So during a data meeting. You're usually reviewing the data from one assessment, whether that's maybe EOI data from the previous year, data from a benchmark assessment or a common assessment, or some sort of common assignment. Maybe it's a writing sample. The purpose of these meetings is to understand how students are performing in relation to the standards so that we can make a plan for future instruction. And that's the goal. Any data PLC where teachers spend 45 minutes bemoaning how badly their kids did on the test but not making a plan to adjust their teaching is a waste of time. But that's sometimes where they get stuck. So today I'm gonna to share seven steps to follow during a data meeting that will result in teachers walking away with a new way of thinking about their instruction and a plan to intervene with students. So let's get started. Step one, we wanna set a purpose. We're gonna set our purpose to leave with our plan. That's our purpose, okay? Step two is to provide teachers with no-name data. Three is flip through students' tests to note strategies and processes. Four is record percentages on a blank copy. Five is differentiate your plan for next steps. Six, use student names to create small groups for intervention. And seven, share strengths by modeling. I know that's a lot, okay? So let's look at each step and talk about what it looks like so you can envision what this could look like with your teachers. Step one, we're going to set a purpose to lead with a plan, okay? The big idea is that everybody needs to know why you're there. And the reason you're there sets the tone for the meeting. So if you are there to understand the data, okay, that means that nothing's going to come out of it. You're just going to understand, you're going to make excuses, you're going to be fat. <laughs> okay? If you are there to create a plan for next steps, teachers know you're going to get to that and they're going to walk away with something that will help them support students. And that sets the tone of a productive, problem-solving, collaborative session. Step two is provide teachers with no-name data. This could be a document like the ones in the first 20 days of coaching resource in my TPT store. You actually break down data by passing rate or standard or by question. The reason it's no name is a really good reason. I have to tell you this. Think about your data meetings. How many times have you heard, oh, so-and-so, they always do this? Or really, so-and-so did that? That can't be right. Getting stuck on what they expected their kids to do or what naughty things their kids did during the assessment can take away from actually understanding the numbers and what they're telling us. I'm not saying that you shouldn't take data with a grain of salt because, like I mentioned in episode nine, data can't tell us the whole picture. But when we stop trying to understand because we think the kids, we know the kids better, or we're so annoyed we can't think, it takes away from our growth. So that's why I like to start with no name data where we just look at numbers and kind of try to understand a general picture of what's happening. Step three, we want to flip through students' tests to note strategies and processes. Okay. This is such an important step, and we often don't spend the time that we need to on it. Let me tell you why. It helps put data into context, okay? I used to work with a teacher who was new to our school, and she'd been teaching before, but I guess the population of students that she taught with was very different because she was really surprised while she was working with a lot of our students at some of their behaviors, and so she, I remember her coming to me once and telling me that her she had students that were just constantly failing their math assessments one after the other and I said well what are they doing on their math tests have you taken a look and she was like what do you mean I said can I can I look at their tests she pulled out their tests and I was flipping through them and the children were just circling answers there had been no work done so either they didn't know how to do it or they didn't do it but one way or another there was no evidence of thinking on that paper and it was a math test how are you going to do that (laughs) OK, yes, some kids, I know I'm going to hear from somebody about how there are kids who just can do this and they have amazing mental math and yay for them. But the majority of students need to produce something, the majority of adults need to produce something on paper to figure out the answer to a math question. OK, and I was very uh, specific and demanding, honestly, of my kids demonstrating their thinking on paper. I didn't just say show your work because they don't know what that means. But I would I would model for them. This is what it looks like. And then I would expect that. And honestly, the first few weeks of school or the first couple months of school, I would not accept a blank test paper from them. If it was just circled answers, I'd say, no, I don't know what you're thinking. You're going to take it back and you're going, to, you're going to demonstrate your work on each of these questions, and then we'll see if I'll take it from you. And once you set the standard, they know what is expected. But this teacher had never done that before. So she didn't know, she didn't realize why the kids were failing. The data just showed they had lots and lots of gaps but it didn't represent the context. She didn't realize that they were just randomly circling stuff and turning in their papers. That's why I believe that's one of the many reasons why I believe it's so important whenever we meet with teachers to look at data, to look at the actual tests, because that story that happened once when I was a classroom teacher has happened to me many, many times since then as as a teacher and as a coach, where the teacher doesn't realize that what she thinks the data is telling her is not really what it's telling her or him, because It's not the full picture. And the full picture is that kid's just randomly circling stuff, (laughs) okay? This is the closest you'll get to knowing what was going on in the student's brain at the time of the test. And if they're just circling a bunch of answers, it tells you that you need to have a dialogue with that student to understand why, or you need to watch them as they take their assessment. From there, I give each teacher a blank copy of the test, and they record percentages, okay? So for each question, they record as much information as they have about it, and percentages is the very least. So maybe we'll mark the standard, the percentage on each choice, and we'll mark what the right answer is. You can have this done in advance if you're strapped for time. And so I usually did because it was faster and it didn't take away from the process to already have the classroom percentages marked on a copy of the test and have you know the correct answer marked and what, how many percentage students chose each answer. Because our teachers actually used bubble sheets and we scanned them in and then we would look at the data online because it was all disaggregated for us. So because we have that, it was easy for me to transfer that to a copy of a test. This really helped us notice patterns in question ty- and question types that students especially struggled with. We can see what, we can look at each question and go, okay, these three questions, they really struggled with, they were thrown by these answer choices, and understand, was it the syntax of the question, you know, the sentence structure? What was it that was throwing them? Or is it this type of question? You can really get at the heart of what kids struggle with if you can examine the test in that way. From there, you're going to differentiate your plan for next steps. And that's step five. You want to sort your standards by above 70% mastery and below, okay? You can use different levels if you it's needed by your class. Like maybe you need to do 60%. Maybe you need to do 80%. It totally depends on, on your class. But I often use 70 because that was a pretty decent indicator of, you know, the majority of kids did pretty well on this. The majority of kids did not. If, they're, if 70% or above of the kids mastered a standard, the kids who did not master that standard were placed in a small group for remediation in that area. Below 70%, if if fewer than 70% of your class understood what to do in that situation, that's a whole group reteach, and you're going to reteach it in a different way. So it depends on again your numbers. Maybe you won't have an you don't you don't need to go to seventy. Maybe you can go all the way up to eighty because you have that. that's your your kids' scores broken down in that way. You'll have the right number of kids in a small group. You feel confident that that's a way to go about your whole group. You can do that. I just, I usually just recommend seventy is a pretty basic start. From there, you can use your student names to create small groups for intervention. So here you're building your intervention groups by providing your teachers with the names of the students and how they did, what their percentage was, so that they can match and say, okay, this in my group about, um, we're going to intervene about author's purpose, and I'm going to do this little lesson uh, where we are going to sort different texts by the author's purpose and identify the complete purpose and not just to inform and to persuade, but we're going to have like a whole statement about it. In that lesson, I'm going to work with Jeremy and Paola and um, Blanca and um, Federico because that's who needs that specific standard. From there, you're going to share your strengths by modeling. And this is why norms are so important. It's also my favorite part. If we stop at step six, the teachers still haven't added anything to their toolboxes that will help them reach students in a different way. Okay. For example, if our test was on main idea and details, and my kids did really well on finding details but struggled to find the main idea, I still don't know how to teach main idea differently yet just because I looked at my data. I know that they need help. I know that I need to go back and teach something differently, but I might not have an idea of how to do that. Although looking at the question stems can be helpful in that area. I'm probably going to go back to the classroom and say, guys, you know this, right? Like, teacher <laughs> doesn't me crazy Ugh, because they obviously don't know it or they would have done better, right? That's just the truth. So at this point, if my kids, kids scored... on that standard, for example, and my next door neighbor's kids scored 88%. I need to know how they taught it. Was it a test-taking skill? Was it a hands-on lesson? Was it a passage? What did they do? I need to know. So as a coach, I can say, did anyone's kids do well in this area? Who scored pretty high? And you can say, who scored above 80%, who scored above 70%? And then they can share about how they taught it. And here's the good part. You can actually give the teacher a pen and a blank test and stick them up on the the document camera and the projector, and they can model it. They can either model the strategy that they taught kids to use on the test, or they can give you a little acronym that they use, whatever it is that they did. They can show what it looks like. And that is teaching gold right there. It's amazing. Teachers learn so much, and it becomes a true PLC with teachers taking ownership. To prepare for this, though, like I mentioned, it's important to set the stage for sharing in your norms, okay? The idea that if you have something that can help, you're going to show us how because that's collaboration and that is teaching. We're going to help each other. We're going to do what's best for kids in sharing our expertise. So basically, those are those those steps for taking a bunch of numbers and using them to change teaching for the better. So I'm going to review those seven steps with you. One, you're going to set a purpose, which is to leave with a plan. Two, provide teachers with no-name data. Three, flip through students' tests to note strategies and processes. Four, record percentages on a blank copy. Five, differentiate your plan for next steps. Six, use uh, yeah, use students' names to create small groups for intervention. And seven, share strengths by modeling, which is the best. So I really want you to implement this process. If you do, if you use, if you look at data with your teachers and you use this process, I would love to hear it. Take a quick photo during your data session and tag me on Instagram at Buzzing with Miss B. I love hearing from people and how they've implemented the strategies. And so that way I know that they work all over the place. And I can't wait to see your photos. So for now, I want you to think about grabbing the free webinar at buzzingwithmissb.com slash webinar with a capital W. If you don't feel like you have a clearly defined role, if you're not sure if looking at data is part of your job or you're not sure who you're supposed to be looking at data with, you feel like you've never really gotten clarity about that, check out the webinar, buzzingwithinspeed.com webinar with a capital W to walk through the process of defining your role so you have clarity on all that and you know what it is your role to implement, okay? If you want to learn some more, and I recommend that you do, you can actually check out episode eight, eight tips for digging into data, And episode 49, which is a coaching call about assessments and data. That's a good one. Um, Also, I think I didn't mention from last week, episode 38, where we're actually talking a little bit about um, developing curriculum collaboratively. But I think we get into the data part a little bit there because that's one of the steps. That's uh, an interview episode with Crystal Cherasani, episode 38, developing curriculum collaboratively. Check it out. Um, Next week, we are going to continue our theme about what do you do here anyway, (laughs) because I feel like it is so important that coaches really define their role clearly, that they know what they're there to do, and that teachers know what they're there to do. When you don't have a good handle on your job, it does not feel good at all. So next week, we're going to talk to an equity advocate, because one of the things that coaches do should be advocating for equity. That's going to be episode 121. And until then, happy coaching. Thank you for listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. Want more coaching ideas? Check me out at buzzingwithmissb.com and on Instagram at buzzingwithmissb. If you love the show, share it with a coach who would love it too, or leave me a review on iTunes. It's free and it helps others find this show. Happy coaching.